This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Well, hello, my friends. It's finally here. Season 10 of The Bubble Hour has arrived at last. I know. I know. It took me forever to bring this to you. But listen, there was a good reason. There's a lot of content in the archives, and I wanted to do it all justice with this multi-part retrospective. So first, I'm not going to (laughs) lie, I took a good long break and I needed that. And then I jumped in and started transcribing 350 hours of archives and that took months, even with automation. Then came brainstorming about what to do with it all and how to shape this season in a way that would honor the stories that have resonated around the globe. So I set out to end this podcast by wrapping it up with a bow, and I thought, I don't know, maybe a six-part documentary would do it, but it turned into 10. So yep, there are 10 episodes in season 10, and that is 10 days of me blowing kisses and hugging goodbye because this is one party where I will not be slipping out unannounced. There is no French exit here. So on top of that... During the process of creating this season, a few other spin-off projects unfolded out of the blue, and I will be revealing those to you as this hour unfolds. So listen on, because I am super excited to share some of the ways to stay connected with this podcast. This is episode one of a 10-part look back over the past decade of The Bubble Hour, a podcast that began as a conversation among friends and went on to become one of the most influential recovery podcasts worldwide with millions of listeners around the globe. But The Bubble Hour podcast, you know what? It isn't about status or rankings or ratings because really, I mean, those things are nice, sure, but this podcast is and was and will go on through the legacy of our archives to be a show about people, real people, telling their real stories of recovery, the power of vulnerability and connection. In 2012, friends Ellie and Lisa decided to try something fun, taking the supportive and enlightening online conversation from their recovery group into a voice format, bringing a new dimension to the incredible experience of online support. Now, by coincidence, that same year, Apple introduced a standalone podcast app on iPhones, meaning listeners no longer needed to access podcasts through a computer and download it to their devices. So it was perfect timing. But listen, 
Ellie and Lisa were not looking for global podcast domination. They just wanted to help people connect through storytelling in a different way. Their primary focus was on the people who were reaching out through the groups they were involved in online. Now, Ellie had a blog, One Crafty Mother, and she told her her story on Oprah. Yep, you guys, Oprah. She received a ton of feedback, and Ellie knew there was something special that was happening as people heard her story and shared theirs. She wondered what other ways could she connect people. Between her blog and online support groups, Ellie knew the power of connection, and so creating a podcast was really a natural extension of that. Now, Ellie and Lisa, they had no experience with audio, and yet they just stumbled into the basics, a website that allowed them to phone in and record a conversation that would broadcast live and then save as a podcast. Well, now a decade later, everybody's become savvy with Zoom and FaceTime and audio and video recording, but in 2012, none of that existed. It was literally a phone-in situation, and Pal Amanda was off-air running the website that connected everyone. There was a lot of trial and error, and the first moments of the bubble hour sounded something like this. Hello, and welcome to the bubble hour. At the bubble hour. Hello. The bubble hour. Hi, Ellie. How are you? Great. That's good. Okay, so it wasn't perfect, but that didn't matter because imperfection was what it was all about. Something incredible unfolded right there, right from the very get-go. Those two women opened their hearts and shared. For those of us listening, people like me who were too scared to walk into a recovery meeting, it was a chance to hear other people telling the truth, and it was like water on a cactus. It felt so good to hear someone else talk openly and laugh about the things that I was taking so seriously and carrying around like a stone. They made listeners feel part of something, feel less alone, feel like they had a friend in this and that everything was going to be okay. Here's Ellie sharing her story that very first episode. She doesn't sugarcoat it, but she doesn't sensationalize it either. If Ellie could talk so easily about things like this, maybe the rest of us could too. I came to sobriety kicking and screaming. I drank long enough that by the end of my drinking, I was not in denial about the fact that I was an alcoholic, but I was not going to stop because I felt like it was the glue that was holding my life together. I'd gone from this high-powered job to staying at home, full-time mm-hmm. mom, and a big identity crisis and a couple glasses of wine made me feel like I wasn't bored and I was cool again. And it was my entertainment and my companion and my friend. Having young children was really a catalyst to adding fuel to the fire, long hours at home alone. My 5 o'clock glass became my 3 o'clock glass. And in mm-hmm. over a fairly short period of time, I became physically addicted to alcohol. You can't not drink or you start to go into some pretty dangerous withdrawal symptoms. By the end of my drinking, there was nobody questioning whether or not I was an alcoholic. It was very clear. I felt utterly alone. I thought I was just the most morally corrupt, bad individual on the planet. I had no idea that there were communities of women and mothers out there who were just like me. And I went to a rehab for 30 days and came out of that scared to death and um, did go to recovery meetings at first and did hear stories that were just like mine, and it changed my life. 
there are so many people that are in what I call sort of that purgatory area mm-hmm. where you are the am I or aren't I? But when I heard other women tell stories that I could identify with, this and it stopped me dead in my tracks, and I realized I wasn't the worst person on the planet, that I had a disease, and I could get help. Here was a woman talking about her rock-bottom experiences, time in rehab, difficulty mothering, and making it seem like something we didn't need to be ashamed of. We need to talk about it. We need to hear other people. We need to learn how to do that. These women taught us how. So the circumstances can be different, but the feelings really are the same. And that's one of the things that we find out as we get to know people online and in real life who are sober. Mm -hmm. The people have different bottoms. People have different events that happen to them. But ultimately, we all feel the same, both Mm -hmm. as as drinking individuals and as sober people. So that's, I think, the power of the voice and of community in recovery. Ellie's way of speaking was warm and engaging and brutally honest about her experiences. Co-host Lisa had a girl-next-door charm, a sweet joyfulness about her, and yet she was able to share difficult truths, like using alcohol as a crutch. I'm Lisa. I'm from Alabama. Um, I'm a wife and a mom to two children and to an eight-month-old Labrador retriever named Harper Lee. I am very busy. I'm a full-time working mom, have very little free time, but but basically I just pretty much try to get through my day without harming anyone or myself, trying to make sure I keep doing the next right thing and being who I need to be. When I started to really become aware of the fact that I was drinking as a crutch maybe to alleviate some symptoms of depression or self-medicate in order to block out or numb feelings that I didn't want to deal with, I would find myself reaching for more red wine. And it got to the point of I noticed a problem. I noticed a pattern. The weekly episodes were a must-listen for other members in the same online recovery group, a now-defunct Yahoo group that had relocated to Facebook and was 100 strong. Perhaps that initial support influenced the algorithms enough to bring a wider audience because the show quickly grew among the never-ending stream of seekers who turned to the internet, newly available on their 2012-era smart devices like never before. As they searched for recovery support and asked, how do I quit drinking? They were offered the option to open a new kind of resource in an app they maybe didn't even know they had, that purple podcast icon. That was 100% my experience anyway, because in 2012, I was one such seeker, alone in my recovery, but for the readers of my blog Unpickled, where I was writing about secretly quitting alcohol. I stumbled on the bubble hour and devoured those early episodes, feeling as if the hosts and guests of this show were long lost friends speaking to my soul. Everything was a trigger for me. I was a closet drinker, not a barroom drinker. I was a barroom drinker earlier on, but not later in my in my drinking. Um, so everything was a trigger. My kids were a trigger. Uh, cooking was a trigger. Going anywhere was a trigger because I had to drive by liquor stores pretty much to get anywhere I wanted to go. Um, so what I found really helpful in the earliest days, and I had gotten this advice at rehab also, was to change patterns as much as I can because I realized that there was a real cycle to my drinking 
um, for a lot of us, the end of the day is a trigger, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, and so I would think of different things to do during those hours. When I, um, I would do things like exercise or play video games just to sort of numb out and not think for a while. When I had to go out, I tried to go out as little as possible, but when I had to go out, I would drive on different roads so I didn't have to drive by a liquor store because, quite honestly, I didn't trust my car not to suddenly turn into the parking lot. Um, I even went in a different door of my house. I mean, I really changed everything. I rearranged the closets because I used to hide bottles of wine in closets, and I just everything reminded me of drinking, and I was trying to sort of clean the slate, rearrange furniture, just make my life look and feel as different as I could. Um, I also simplified my life a lot. I, I backed off on being on committees, which was a really, really difficult thing for me to do, and um, asked my friends to help either drive my kids to activities or take them for play dates so that I could have some time to myself, start exercising or sleeping. I did a lot of sleeping and early sobriety. And I just had the space and the time to do whatever I needed to do to heal my mind and my body. You know, it was really just creating my bubble as best I knew how. Ah, yes, the bubble concept, the name of the show. People always ask, why do you call it the bubble hour? And this is it. Learning to build a bubble around yourself to protect your sobriety. Lisa explains more. Well, I know it sounds really silly, and the, the name itself, the bubble, but it was something that I knew I had to do to protect myself when I first decided to stop drinking. I didn't know what the future held, but I knew that if I didn't quickly make a change, that something really bad, all those not yet that had not happened, were about to start happening, and I knew I had to quickly change. So I decided to create a bubble for myself, which was basically a safe place for me to go inside my brain. It was a a shield that would protect me, and I knew that I had to stop saying yes to things I would feel resentful about, stop overcompensating constantly, stop trying to be the perfect wife and mother, stop trying to feel the pressure to be all and do all for my family and friends, Um, because those were the things that were causing me to feel so resentful and stressed out and basically just checked out. So I made a decision, and I told my family that things were going to change, and I was going to have to take care of myself, which meant um, I would be saying no a lot and focusing on getting well, and that's how I explained it to my children. And I told my husband that our life would would have to change until I was able to to be sober, and um, that was my that was my theory behind the bubble. It was just my safe place. I believe it saved my life. The imagery of the bubble is so great. Like you can put in your bubble. Like it's Friday night and it's difficult and it's five <laughs> o'clock. What kinds of things can you find that kind of you know that you do for you that help sort of fill the hole that that alcohol leaves in your life when you first stop drinking? I've got lots of items for my bubble. It took me a while to to really, first of all, to really find humor in my situation. I was so sad, and I had no idea how I was going to live the rest of my life or even the next day without alcohol. I found 
things that I like. Books, I would grab tons of books on Friday night after I took my children into bed and I would read. I would get online and go to recovery sites. I would go to any blog I could find that would keep my mind otherwise engaged. I would do anything but drink. My main goal was getting through the next hour without drinking. So I would just focus on whatever it was that made me happy enough or at least mindless enough to be able to to not pick up a drink. I mean, I would eat ice cream. I had tons of ice cream in my bubble. I would eat chocolate <laughs> candy mixed with peanut butter. Oh, yeah. I would eat Reese's Cups by the family size bag. Anything and everything you can think of, I was doing to not drink. I, the list could go on. I've got oh Netflix. I loved watching mindless TV. Mm-hmm. Anything that kept my brain from too much thought. You know, I wasn't I wasn't at a place where I was ready to really feel and accept things. But I knew I had to do something besides what I was doing. And Ellie, there was so much that went into my bubble. <laughs> <laughs> ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Over those first few episodes, we got to know the show creators and original hosts through their stories and personal essays. Here's Ellie reading an entry from her blog, One Crafty Mother, in 2011. The piece is titled, Behind the Glass. The house is still and quiet. I should be sleeping. In a moment, I'll head up to bed, but I treasure this time alone. I lie on my couch in the semi-dark, and I breathe sifting through moments from the day and savoring them like sweet treasures. Tonight, though, my mind is tugged to you, to the woman quietly crying, wondering how she ended another day with a glass in her hand, a nearly empty bottle calling to her from the kitchen. You promised yourself tonight would be different. You woke up feeling strong and determined, your softly pounding head thumping a beat to your misery. Not tonight, you swore to yourself. No more. 
Then 4 o'clock comes around, and the kids are edgy and restless. You can't bear to fetch one more snack, answer one more unanswerable question. You are bored, exhausted, and empty. There is homework to be done, dinner to prepare, endless nighttime rituals to perform. The thought of giving the kids a bath without the soothing effects of wine seems preposterous, cruel. Just one, you say. Just something to dull the edges. You want to find that loving place, the one full of warmth and light. You don't drink the glass all the way down before you fill it up just a little, then a little more. Then you have one with dinner. When your husband steps out of the room for a bit, you drink one down quickly, but just one. That soft, warm feeling turns prickly. The kids won't go to sleep. Your husband makes a remark that settles on you wrong. Just another sip or two to push back the edginess, only enough to put to get back to that soft place. You notice the bottle is almost gone. You've done it again. Tomorrow, you tell yourself. Tomorrow will be different. I'm thinking about you tonight because the tomorrows will keep coming and coming. And in their wake, they will leave the shattered remains of broken promises to yourself. Everyone's needs are met but yours. You are left empty-handed, helpless, and scared. You have a secret. You are looking at the world through glass. I know, because I've lived there, too. You press your nose up against its cool, tear-streaked surface, and you wonder, what is wrong with me? You are dancing on that thin line between keeping it all together and falling apart. The world doesn't know, but you do. You know. You have built a house of cards around the not knowing, but you do. You do know. I don't drink and drive, you tell yourself. I only drink at night. I only drink wine. I'm not the one falling down drunk at a party, not like so-and-so. I need to drink to be creative, to socialize, to be a more patient mother. You look at your life the way the world sees you instead of looking from the inside out. Through their eyes, you look fine. If you look good through their eyes, you must be okay, right? The world can't see the glass, so as long as you keep moving, you can pretend it's not there. You have created the perfect movie set, props artfully arranged to present the perfect picture. And you? You are in the audience at a safe distance, watching your life play out on the screen. I'm thinking of you tonight as I listen to the creaks and groans of my old house and hear my dog's contented sigh as she settles down for the night. The clock ticks softly. The refrigerator hums. I am here, just listening, just being. I am sitting quietly in my cozy home, listening to the echoes of the day. This sounds so small, so insignificant, but it's not small to me. There is no glass, you see. The glass is gone. How do you make it stop? How do you make the endless tomorrows stop coming? That is what you want to know. You make the endless tomorrows stop coming by being in today. It's the only today you've got. You can opt out disappear behind the glass, or you can feel it, all of it. Listen to those things that you tell yourself. Examine each card in that house you've built. Turn it over. Really look at it and ask yourself, is this about living my life or about hiding from it? After you've been living behind the glass, it's frightening to be on stage with the starring role in your own life. The glare of the spotlight, the endless eyes watching you expectantly, it's all overwhelming. It will make you want to hide. 
you will feel raw, vulnerable, exposed, uncomfortable, but only for a while. With time, you stop seeing the spotlight, stop wondering what the eyes are thinking. You will feel comfortable just being. It will happen. In order to be free of the glass, though, you have to admit it's there and that it is slowly suffocating you. That's a good place to start. That kind of honest introspection and thoughtful insight resonated with listeners from all walks of life, offering hope to anyone still struggling and connection for those in recovery. Listeners responded to the candor, and they loved the good-natured humor, too. My name is Misty, and I am a mom. I have a four-year-old son, and I live in Oregon, and I just love the bubble hour. That Lisa lady, she is so funny. She is funny. (laughs) It felt good to laugh and balanced with more serious efforts to be vulnerable. Here's Lisa, first explaining how Southern women are taught to behave. And that makes it plain how hard it must be for her to share the essay that follows. In the South, we're really raised to keep our skeletons properly buried, meaning smile and show no weakness. And women are especially taught to be agreeable, put your lipstick on, always send a thank you note, never ever attract attention to yourself by discussing your private matters with others. It's taboo to open up about your own private battles. So it has been difficult for me. But I am finally at a place where I am no longer walking around ashamed of myself in regard to my alcoholism. I finally understand that being an alcoholic doesn't mean that I'm immoral or that I'm a failure as a person, but it's taken me months to get to where I am. I'd like to read something I wrote recently about what being vulnerable now as a recovering alcoholic means to me. For most of my life, I've appeared normal to the outside world. I packaged myself as a strong person from the earliest of my memories. Even as a little girl, I knew the measures to take to ensure that I blended in and even seemed self-assured. As a teenager, then as an adult, I perfected these little tricks. Despite the ever-increasing amount of alcohol I was drinking daily, I still managed to present myself in a way that conveyed success even to my family and my very close-fitted, most trusted friends. By most accounts, I appeared to have the perfect life, complete with a husband and two children, a home in a nice neighborhood, and a successful career. Many social invitations, and I was very active in my community. All of that was just a part of my mask. I now know that I was drinking in an attempt to escape the truth. The truth was I hated myself. My insides did not match my my outside. I was my own worst enemy. Eventually, as these things always go, the alcohol stopped creating the desired internal effect. I began hating myself even more as my only coping, coping mechanism stopped numbing my insides. Throughout the course of my entire life, I have never truly even let one person into the deepest part of myself. In order to let someone see my most locked-away self, I would have to force myself to be vulnerable. I've even avoided writing this in preparation for tonight's show because of the fear of actually having to be vulnerable now as I read this. I've personally spent so much time keeping people and feelings at bay by building huge walls around my heart. All of this avoidance is, at the end of the day, about shame. Shame keeps me from becoming my best self, my truest self. 
I'm learning how to rewire my brain and undo a lifetime of fearing others will not like what they see if I show them who I really am. I was taught through life circumstances from a very early age to protect myself. I wanted to protect myself from judgment and criticism. I didn't want to share my deepest thoughts and feelings simply because I feared rejection. Thankfully, I am now in a place in my life where I'm beginning to see that forcing myself to be vulnerable is key to living a life that is meaningful. The very first step to me getting to this place was finding people in recovery. At first, I thought the only thing I would have in common with others in recovery was addiction. I was so very wrong. I was completely amazed by just how much I had in common with other recovering alcoholics. I had to force myself to take a leap of faith in the beginning days of my recovery. I had to admit to others that despite the fact that I appeared to have it all together, I was a complete mess of chaos and destruction on the inside. Instead of being mocked or laughed at or rejected, I heard the most beautiful words I'd ever heard in my whole life. I heard, you are not alone, me too. With these little words, I began to consider telling more about myself to the people I trust the most in my recovery community. These people were once strangers, and now they are some of my best friends. And once again, to my surprise, they loved me despite my flaws. In fact, some of these people in my recovery circle loved me even more because of my flaws. And because I let them in, I began to heal. <clears throat> Makes me cry. Oh. I still have miles to go on my recovery journey, on my journey through vulnerability. Being transparent with my thoughts and feelings is going to require a lot of time and effort on my part. But I recognize now just having the courage to speak my truth, even some of my truth, to even a few very trusted people is the foundation I need to be able to be the person I am meant to be. Each time I make a choice to be real with no apology about who I am, is a choice that has the possibility to transform my life in the most rewarding way possible. I'm so much more than my darkest thoughts. I'm so much more than my darkest actions. I'm learning through being vulnerable that I am perfect by virtue of my imperfections. I'm learning that I'm powerful by virtue of my vulnerability. Every time I expose a sacred and once locked away part of my heart, I'm letting the light in to what was once the darkest part of me, and that is truly my freedom. Other voices joined the conversation in the form of callers and invited guests to the show. One early guest was an author, Sasha Soblick, who shared a laugh about having fantasies over going to rehab. Initially, when I was uh, introduced to the 12-step world, I had some rehab envy. It was, it's like a it's like a diet, and that's the jump start. And um, I love rehab envy. That's good, right? And I also liked the idea of um, leaving home, like to go to a retreat and heal. I thought that sounded very nice. I, I, I know more now. I know that they're not retreats. <laughs> and that, um, anyway, I did have rehab envy. The other thing I would have done differently is ask for help a lot sooner. I was um, I was going about it so hard. I was white-knuckling it. I mean, I didn't know that there was an easier way. So I wish I had asked for help, but I was stubborn. 
Many listeners wrote in to share their stories, like Kate, who shared her frustration with having multiple day ones. Her words are read here by Lisa. I've had multiple day ones. I'm frustrated with myself and the fact that I keep giving in to the thought that somehow I'll learn to moderate. I know I'm only kidding myself, and I'll just prolong the inevitable. Over the past week, I've come to realize I cannot do this on my own. It kills me to admit that I can't control this disease and fix myself, but it is my reality, and I have to accept it. I haven't decided what type of support I will seek. I've looked into a private therapist, but also recognize that so many are successful thanks to the support of a 12-step program. I've also considered that maybe I need to do both. I've also stopped counting days. If I think of how many days there are, there might possibly be in my lifetime, which are hopefully many, getting and staying sober seems like such a daunting and impossible task. It is easier for me just to get through today. Including call-ins to the show was a process that was a little more difficult than expected, and switchboard mishaps created enough outtakes for a whole episode that you will hear later this season. The phone-in callers really added a lot of richness and interest to the show, though. Here's Ellie with a caller talking about mistaken identities in rehab. I was such a little goody-two-shoes in rehab that oh, that people thought I was a like an RA or a counselor there, and they would ask me like permission for a pass or something. I say, oh no no no, I'm a patient. They're like, you are, but you have a clipboard, you know. <laughs> oh, I did the same thing. I went up to this really you know tattooed covered person or whatever who looked scary, and I said, you know, welcome. You know, my name's Lisa. He was a counselor. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I but I thought, oh, look at that poor soul over there. Nobody's going to talk to him. You know, and so here he's got better recovery than anybody. Now there's another way to help others find the strength and courage championed on this podcast by joining us on Patreon. Patrons of the show will have access to full versions of the entire backlist, ad-free, for as little as $5 a month. And, of course, you can cancel any time. And there are other levels of support as well that help us pay for the website, the annual domain fees, and the ongoing costs of keeping free versions of the show available. Plus, you will be helping to support the creation of new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. a few months, pal Amanda was welcomed as a co-host. Now, Amanda had been working behind the scenes running the switchboard, and she's a computer tech expert, so she was most comfortable off air. But Amanda bravely jumped in to help when needed. And um, as well as my co-host, Lisa. And I would also like to introduce a new co-host to the Bubble Hour. Some of you may have heard her answering phones for us, and we're thrilled that she's going to co-host with me today. And um, so I'd like to introduce you to Amanda as well. Welcome. Uh, well, thank you, Ellie, and thank you so much for asking me to co-host. I, you know, it's really a uh, privilege to be on here. Amanda didn't waste any time. She went straight into the deep end with all the candor we'd already come to expect from the Bubble Hour. With my experience, because I was arrested for drunk driving, I actually attended four types of rehab facilities. Um, the first two were volunteer, voluntary. I actually, um, you know, had a level of desperation that I checked myself in before the courts could get to me. 
Um, and so I checked myself into a detox where I stayed for six days. Um, and they actually suggested that I stay for an inpatient program uh, for 30 days after, but I was really anxious about getting back to work. So I opted for the intensive outpatient program, which is what one of the other ones you talked about. Um, fortunately, the daily recovery, the, the daily recovery meetings and that outpatient worked for me, but in hindsight, I really wish I had done the 30-day inpatient program. Um, and like I said, I had two other court-ordered programs because of my arrest. One was a two-week inpatient program, and the other one was a weekly group counseling session that I attended for a year. Um, and so that's just a little bit of my history. But my, my decision to get sober came after an intervention. And like I said, I was pretty desperate when, that, when my friends and family came in and piled into my living room and said, you need to get help. And I actually agreed to get the help very quickly. Um, I'm told it's, it was the easiest intervention ever. Um, but... <laughs> um, you know, fortunately, my best friend was there, and she had gotten sober three years before me, and she offered to come over the next morning and help me get into treatment, and I am so grateful for that, um, because it's not as easy as you would think it would be. Between the hosts and the variety of guests, a rich tapestry of storytelling emerged. But Ellie reminds us that this is about more than entertainment. It's all for a very specific purpose. Our objective here at the Bubble Hour is to help people understand that absolutely anybody could be an alcoholic and that the stigma is really a fallacy. A major issue that keeps people stuck in the cycle of addiction, even when they know they have a problem or maybe a niggling doubt that their drinking is getting worse, is shame. And we believe strongly in the power of story and truth as the antidote to shame. Um, we're certainly not trying to give anybody answers or any how-tos. This is really just women sharing their stories to um, demonstrate that really the only thing you can do wrong is not to try at all, to not reach out for help or not love yourself enough to face your drinking head on. And shatter the shame and stigma it did. Here, a listener named Mary shares how this reframed approach to talking about recovery affected her with a story about confronting stigma head on. I wanted to tell a story of something that happened to me. And I take my daughter to Starbucks in the morning sometimes, and, you know, we're regulars where we go in and the people that work there say hi to us. It happened to be in the evening one night that I was going out, and I stopped in there to go get a cup of coffee, and I pulled my car up into the lot, and I see a guy in the front kind of sitting on the floor, and, you know, you could just tell that this guy has been drinking a lot, and it wasn't his first time. So ordering my coffee and the guy walks in and kind of making a little bit of noise and he goes over to the, the people that are working and he's asked them to call him an ambulance. He's like, I need an ambulance. I can't, I can't get home. I drank too much and I can't, I got to stop drinking. So I'm standing here online listening and waiting for their reaction and they kind of tried to talk him down a little bit and he, they got him to go back outside and sit, and then I heard one of the, the workers say to the other one, oh, alcoholic, you know, derogatory attached to it, like, look at that drunk. And I, I was standing there shaking, you know, and I was angry. I almost felt like it wasn't fair. Like, here I am standing there. You know, I don't obviously look like this person, but 
I could just as well be struggling the same way that that man is. And just because I don't look like he looks, you know, they make a judgment. And, and I said something. I just said, you know, I'm an alcoholic too, and I might not look like that person. But you should be careful because you don't know who it is that you're that's struggling at that moment. And yeah. and the guy just kind of looked at me. <laughs> And I, I was shaking so hard, you know, and I had gotten my coffee and I walked out and all of these things went through my head, you know. I go in here with my daughter, what are they going to think? So, you know, I'm, this is the problem. That's, that's the problem that is going on in this society. Anyone that's struggling, that's trying to get help for themselves, this is a positive thing. All of these people should be put on pedestals, you know, and praised for the, the you know, the how hard it is for them to do this and that they're doing it. You know, they yeah. shouldn't feel ashamed about it. And I did go in the next day. I made a point uh, to go in, and I got my coffee. I had my daughter with me, and, you know, it's fine. I, and I go in there still every other day or so, and I still I've, I've run into the same person that I saw that night that I said that to, and he hasn't said anything. He hasn't treated me any differently. And of all of the stories that I've heard, I've never actually heard a bad story, you know, of somebody asking for support. If I did, it was the person that they're asking it from doesn't care about them in the way that they should, or maybe they have their right. own problems. If somebody really, truly cares about your well-being, you know, they're going to be happy that you're you're taking a step in the right direction to, to you know, make your life better for mm -hmm. yourself, your family, Absolutely. and everyone around you. Mary, the guy that works at Starbucks, how it, yes. he didn't say anything to you, and he probably has more respect for you than any other customer that walks into the store because that guy, that alcoholic, needed someone to stand up for him, and you were brave enough to be that person. And I, I admire you for that because I don't know I don't know for sure what I would have done. I just I think that he probably felt nothing but respect for you after that. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, it wasn't always completely serious. Guest Andrea Owen shared a laugh about the irony of when she was watching Ellie's Oprah interview before they knew each other, and Andrea was still drinking, problematically herself at that time. So even then, the humor led them to a discussion full of wisdom. I remember even, and this is so funny, I know Ellie, you and I have had this conversation before, but when I was still drinking, um, that's when you were on Oprah. And that's when that I was watching, <laughs> probably with a glass of wine in my hand, watching. And I remember, I think it was you that was talking about how you used to um, hide um, bottles around. And there was yeah, another mom on there, there that. Yep. <laughs> there was another mom on there that was that was really bad. And she was still drinking, and they were showing her still drunk. And I was sitting there judging, sitting on the couch, going like, "Oh my god!" Like you. Those are terrible mothers. Like, that's not me. And then and, and I'm fine as I finish my bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that I think that for me, I felt like the stigma was um, you must be a terrible mother if you're an alcoholic. This is what I made up in my mind. Um, and because of what I did for a living, I told myself there's no way that I can come out and be in the helping profession. Like, people will think I'm a fraud. People will think I'm an idiot. People will think I'm, I'm not good at what I do which deep down I knew that none of that was true. So I, and I also know that stigma and shame breed in silence and mm -hmm. that I also know that judgment, other people's judgments comes from their own insecurities of themselves. And those are projections of their own fears.
The show was hitting a home run week after week, helping people talk openly in a way that wasn't being done in very many places yet. Sometimes the stories just took your breath away. Here's Ellie sharing some of her deep fears about recovery. I didn't know the real me either. I had been people-pleasing so long. I'd been so, I spent so many years being who you wanted me to be that I didn't know who I was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if I had some revelation and wanted to be a real person, I don't think that I even I was capable of doing it. Um, so, you know, fast forward to recovery, and I felt really, really vulnerable in early sobriety in particular. You know, I lost my anesthesia, this magic elixir I had that gave me the perception of fitting in, and suddenly I was just acutely aware of how small my life had become. I knew plenty of people, but I didn't really know anyone. And, you know, I would look at myself and I would think I'm just made up entirely of mistakes and fault lines and guilt and shame. I couldn't find one thing that I liked about myself in early recovery. And it just sort of felt like my skin had been ripped off and every protective layer of denial I had um, was gone. And and so was my, you know, my go-to cure, quote-unquote, for all of my bad emotions, drinking. I didn't have anywhere to hide anymore. So socializing in any context was absolutely excruciating. Like even when alcohol wasn't around, just going to a play date or a play group because I didn't know how to be. I just really didn't have the first idea how to just be myself. Mm-hmm. And as you guys have talked about also going to recovery meetings or meeting other people in recovery, both online and offline, they were really my first tentative steps towards finding the real me. And to do this, to find the real me, to really bond with people, I had to drop the people-pleasing. And this was just as hard as stopping drinking was in many ways. And um, because, like I said, it made me feel totally exposed and totally vulnerable. Like, what if I'm the real me and nobody likes me? For a long time when I was drinking, my biggest fear was that if you really got to know me, you wouldn't like me. And that's part of the sort of double life we we lead as alcoholics. And you know, becoming who you wanted me to be and holding all of my characters together with alcohol had been my single coping mechanism for as long as I could remember. And learning how to cope in the world without this armor was really hard. And as I said, it was other people in recovery who, in recovery who really got me through that first year and who accepted me as I was and who listened to my sordid drinking history and loved me anyway. And little by little, I learned how to be real and embrace my flaws and surrender to things that were beyond my control. But I felt very vulnerable through this whole process. I mean, it sounds like I'm making it sound easy and when I'm summarizing it, but it was extremely difficult. These conversations began having a real impact. We hear a caller named Sarah here attesting to the power of sharing stories. After quitting for 17 months, Sarah was stunned by how quickly she returned to the same level of alcohol use. But online support exposed her to other people's stories and helped her to embrace her own vulnerability and overcome relapse. Why can't I just reset the clock? You know, why can't I just go back to to drinking? Like, why can't I, you know, be normal and drink a little bit and be happy with that? Like, I think I can do that if I just stop for a while. And then it's almost as like, you know, someone came up and hit me with a two-by-four when I realized, like, I had stopped for 17 months and it only took me four weeks to get back mm-hmm. exactly to the point it was before. I went through the normal, like, being upset, like, oh, my God, I can't ever drink again. Like, is that even, can I even consider that? Can I even, like, is that a concept? And I always point myself back to the fact that I had stopped for so long, and <clears throat> it only took me four weeks to get exactly back to where I was. The, the progressiveness was so quick for me. I realized that I was out of control, 
and that was really scary. And I said, okay, we need, I need to stop. And it was months of like, okay, I'll stop on Monday and then I'll get a few days in me. And then I'll be like, I all messed up and I'll be like, okay, I'm not going to drink on the weekend because my husband will be home. And I did all the things that everybody else said they would do, you know, don't drink mm-hmm. until my husband comes home. Don't drink only have one bottle of wine in the house. I mean, I played all the games that everybody plays and it's exhausting. I was exhausted. I was, I was ashamed and disgusted and lonely and isolated and disgusted. And, you know, I, I really, I knew I needed to change something. So I had been looking online and realizing that like from, from the comfort of my own computer, I was researching everything, you know, moms that drank and all the stories from these women. I like literally, it was as if I was writing all of them. I couldn't believe that I wasn't the only one that experienced this. And I couldn't believe that there was, there was no shame in their voices. I mean, there was. They say felt ashamed, but there was no shame in their responses. You know, everybody was just so supportive, and they all had varying amounts of sobriety. And I learned as much from the people who were on day one or day two as the people who had been there for a couple of years. I learned on every single post. But I realized that, like, being vulnerable is, is the way to get out of this. You can't turn a corner unless you're vulnerable and share your story and talk to other people and, and feel like you're not alone. And I heard the freedom in the people's voices that had stopped drinking, and I wanted that so bad. And that's what, that's what kept me, that's what made me change. Within a few short months, the show was really taking hold and growing. Something amazing was happening. I know for me, listening along as I walked my dogs through my neighborhood thousands of miles away in Alberta, Canada, I had no idea that this show that was helping me so much would soon become an even bigger part of my life. Like everyone else, I was just enjoying the ability to listen to these voices of hosts from New England to Alabama and guests from across the U.S. and even a few Canadians who showed up week after week and spoke openly about life after alcohol. For those of us with no one to talk to about this important aspect of our lives, it was pure, sweet relief to listen in and feel utterly understood. We've also experienced ourselves and we hear from other people in recovery a sense of kind of not knowing what to do with myself in early recovery and at any stage. Drinking and using took up so much of our consciousness. It can be, it can be daunting to fill the hole that alcohol and drugs leave in your life when you get sober. And we certainly have more time and more freedom and more choices as we grow in recovery. And um, this is definitely a gift, but it can also feel unfamiliar or uncomfortable. Perhaps when we get sober, we feel um, that without the drinking or the using, we, we have to find our drive and our motivation and our, maybe even our courage when as sober individuals the way that we had or we felt that we had as using individuals, even though it's um, obviously not the same sort of substantive thing. Some of us struggle with feelings of guilt or unworthiness or fear as we look to new challenges, maybe a feeling that we need permission to do something or maybe even more importantly to not do something. So much about early recovery in particular is about self-care and self-love and keeping things simple. And for many of us, that can be difficult as well. Um, or maybe sort of a juxtaposition to feeling like we should be doing more with life. They're both equally important things to consider, both what we're doing and what we're not doing, to um, sort of live a wholehearted life and, and achieve our greatest sense of self and accomplishment. We're not offering any solutions or any answers, but we can share our own stories, our feelings, and our experiences around these topics. And, um, you know, our goal is really just to keep this important discussion going. This is 
is a broad brush discussion about all different stages and phases of recovery and some of the obstacles and triumphs that we all face as we as we move ahead on this journey. There's no right way to do sobriety. There's no, um, none of us need one more thing to worry about or feel guilty about. So when we're talking about next steps in recovery and the things about following your passions or your dreams, this is just um, part of a, a broader discussion about kind of the pro- progression and arc of recovery itself. We, um, I, I know from, from my own personal experience and other people in recovery, it's very easy to hear conversations about topics like this and think, oh, I should be doing more, I should be doing that. This is not a should conversation. This is just a way to open up the, discuss, the discussion that there's all different sort of phases and, and, and progressions to recovery, and it's important to talk about each and every one of them in an open and honest fashion. And bottom line is that if you're sober, if you're just not drinking or using for one day, that is enough. That is living a, a sober and productive life. So we, we we want to emphasize that we're sharing this through story and through experience, but we're not offering specific answers or solutions to everything because nobody can do that. Still ahead on Season 10 of the Bubble Hour, we'll explore the topics covered, we'll get to know the hosts, we'll review some changes the show went through over the years, and remember a few of our favorite moments as we look back over a decade of the Bubble Hour. Now, as you might have heard earlier on this episode, there are some big news rolling out with Season 10, including our new spinoff podcast called Tiny Bubbles, a book of Bubble Hour-inspired recovery readings called Take Good Care and a chance to support the show and access full episodes from the backlist by joining us over on Patreon. So I'm Jean McCarthy. I'll be here in your feed when you're ready to listen to the next installment of this 10-part look back. Until then, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame likes to hide We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine When you see I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Oh, yes, You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear You don't need to whisper to confession them person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror and the one who matters most can always hear when you say I old different not proud but that was me and when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power oh yes and I'm I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just
just want to be free. 